0: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of JameelCast, the public health science podcast, told by scientists themselves. I am not Dr. Tom Rawson, your regular host, but Tristan Naidu, because this episode, the tables have turned, and I find myself in the interview chair to hear about Tom's area of research expertise, diseases that cross over from animals to humans. So we know
1: that the majority of the world's pandemics start from animals. We know that many such viruses exist in animals currently. And we know that we're taking the risk every day of a brand new pandemic. And if we don't do something, then you know, we're only going to have ourselves to blame when the next pandemic arrives sooner rather than later.
0: Tom finished his PhD two and a half years ago but there's a parallel world out there where he never entered the world of research in the first place.
1: So I left school and originally I started an art degree. I loved maths at school, but the only job that I could think of that used maths were to work in a bank or to work in a school, neither of which really interested me. Suffice to say that art school was not the university experience that I really wanted. And so I dropped out and jumped ship to study maths instead, thinking, oh, I'll worry about jobs at the end of it. During my undergraduate, I did a EuroP research placement. I was uh, algorithmically calculating the best combination of plants to achieve a certain green space aim, and I loved it. Uh, and I've been doing research ever since. I bounced around various projects, everything from uh, gene expression modelling to lab animal welfare monitoring, mosquito population dynamics, before then finally settling on an area at the middle of all these interests, which is modelling diseases. animals. My PhD was all about researching the spread of a bacteria called Campylobacter in chicken flocks, taking a lot of the modelling theory that we've heard about in previous episodes and applying that to this specific interesting example case, which has a lot of pervading mysteries around it still. But then, just as I finished my PhD, we had the COVID-19 pandemic and suddenly there was An increased uh, demand for anyone with disease modelling experience. So I started out working with the Oxford Data Working Group before then moving to Imperial in 2021. Most of the last two years I've then spent supporting Imperial's real-time modelling efforts, feeding projections up to decision makers, but also looking at specific questions such as the impact of key decisions around vaccine provision, and also looking at how the imbalance in public health provisions and Deprivation across the country may have impacted the spread of COVID 19. Now, though, COVID 19 research has begun to cool somewhat, and I find myself finally returning to my uh, roots, I suppose, to the
0: world of zoonotic disease. A zoonotic disease is any disease that is passed from an animal to a person, or vice versa. This covers a wide range of pathogens, reflecting the wide variety of animals we live alongside. This might include diseases spread through direct contact with wild animals such as rabies, foodborne diseases from eating compromised meat or animal products such as salmonella, diseases carried over from animals by vectors such as mosquitoes or ticks, or even indirect contact from the environments of infected animals like lassa fever. For some of these diseases, cases appearing in humans are low, as they circulate in wild animals who usually go out of their way to avoid humans. Increasingly though, we see diseases appearing in the animals that we interact with far more frequently, in the agricultural sector, animals that we keep for food.
1: So the human population has exploded in the last few hundred years. And with that huge growth in population comes a huge demand for more food. And so the number of food animals that are reared has increased too. Nowhere is this seen more than in poultry. We slaughter over a billion birds every year in the UK alone. That's thousands of birds in just the time I've been talking, completely absurd numbers. At the same time, it's also never been easier for you or I to acquire a huge selection of cheaply available, nutritionally dense foodstuffs, and so the relative price of a pork chop on the supermarket shelf has had to stay low as well. At the same time, the costs of producing that pork chop have shot up. You have to feed these animals, house them, protect them, process them, sometimes vaccinate them which means that raising animals has really never been less profitable. For many, grazing animals actually no longer turn a profit. The economics of raising animals is actually very interesting. The profitability of a farm is often driven by government subsidies that recognise the, you know, overlooked benefits of these farms, acting as custodians over the land or being paid by government schemes to use the land for various environmental management projects. But the point being that because profits are so slim, the industry has moved to increasingly industrialised processes. Now, for chickens alone, this means specifically bred genetic lines that will grow very quickly, but often at the expense of the bird's general health. And also that means rearing them in very close quarters simply to meet the demand. The legal minimum space... That a broiler chicken, a meat bird, has to have is about one piece of A4 paper each. That's, that's the, the limit. You can raise them at that density, but no tighter. And so now, these conditions that we've found ourselves in, well, these are the perfect conditions for diseases to then spread between these animals. If you imagine, you know, 10,000 slightly unwell humans squeezed into a big shed somewhere, and one of them catches a cold. It won't be long until all of those 10,000 people have a cold. And that's exactly why we've been seeing increasing numbers of zoonotic disease outbreaks in our farmed animals. And when you have more cases of infected animals, that comes with it more instances where that disease can then transfer over to a human. People will, of course, you know, be interacting with these animals throughout their lives, either transporting them or feeding them or slaughtering them and And so cases of people catching diseases from farm animals is naturally on the rise too.
0: Any time an animal disease crosses over into a human, we call this a spillover case. The disease has spilled over from its natural reservoir, the species that it exists in, and has caused disease in a human being. Depending on what that disease is, the consequences of this vary in severity. For most foodborne diseases, the unlikely recipient will likely be stuck in bed for days with horrible stomach cramp and diarrhoea sometimes progressing into nastier autoimmune disorders. It does, however, almost always end there, with one person infected unable to pass that bacteria on to anyone else. With viruses like, for example, coronaviruses or influenza, there is the risk of the spillover case then passing that virus on to another person. This is exactly how new pandemics can begin, a brand new virus that our immune systems have never seen before enters human beings for the first time and takes off. The 2009 swine flu pandemic, the 1968 flu pandemic, and most famously, the devastating 1918 flu pandemic, often called Spanish flu, that killed around 50 million people. These are all thought to have started off with one spillover case. With such terrifying possible outcomes, I asked Tom if there were any zoonotic flu strains ready to make the jump.
1: So there's been a particularly concerning, uh, huge pandemic within bird populations uh, of a highly pathogenic avian influenza called H5N1. Uh, I actually saw one news article writing about it, comparing how while humans were facing our COVID nineteen pandemic, the birds of the world were by coincidence facing their own H5N1 pandemic at the same time, which is a you know fair characterization, I think. And now this has had an absolutely devastating impact on wild bird populations, and we've been seeing hundreds of sudden outbreaks in chicken farms the world over. This strain can wipe out whole flocks in a matter of days, uh, because it's so pathogenic we've actually had sort of bird lockdown orders in the UK for the last couple of years, where all poultry flocks have to be kept indoors uh, to minimise the risk of H5N1 getting in. Nonetheless, this does still happen, and when it does, we have to cull the entire flock, and many of the surrounding flocks as well, as a sort of firebreak. We've never seen something quite as extreme as this current pandemic of avian influenza, and with so much of it about, we have also had instances of it also then appearing in humans, and in many instances, those have been lethal spillovers.
0: So, if there has been a raging H5N1 flu pandemic within birds, And that virus has also spilled over hundreds, if not thousands of times into humans. Why aren't we currently experiencing a human H5N1 influenza pandemic?
1: A virus has one goal, and one goal only, and that's to make more of itself. Now, there's broadly speaking three barriers that a new virus strain has to overcome to succeed in making more of itself. Uh, Number one, it has to be able to get inside the cells of its host, so that it can hijack our cellular machinery to make more copies. Number two, it has to evade the immune system long enough while it's doing this. And then finally, number three, it has to then get out of the host and into a new host to start the process all over again. If a virus strain can't do all three of those things, then it's eventually going to die out and disappear. So a successfully circulating avian flu pandemic in birds like H5N1 currently can do all of those three things in birds. But of course, you and I are very different to birds, and being able to do those three things in a bird doesn't mean you can do those three in a human. So let's look at an example. If you go down to your local park and you grab yourself a poorly swan that's infected with H5N1 avian influenza, and you give it a big kiss, that's Uh, Well, of course, very atypical behaviour, but are you going to have just started a new global human pandemic? Well, let's look at those three jobs that that flu virus has that's just entered your body. Can it get inside your cells and start replicating? Well, that virus has evolved to be looking for chicken cells with certain biological features on chicken cells that it can grab hold of to then crawl inside. It's not going to find those particular receptors it's used to grabbing onto inside of your throat. So it's going to be bouncing around and it might just die out. But you know, maybe if you've ingested a lot of them, one of them luckily might find a way and start replicating. Job number two, this virus has never seen a human immune system before. So, you know, good luck trying to avoid that. Actually, this second job might also be the reason that spillover cases can be quite lethal in humans. We think that our immune system might actually sort of you know go into an overdrive sort of and do us more harm than good in trying to wipe this weird new virus out. And then lastly, job number three, can it get out of your body and land in another person's body to repeat the process? Now our human flus that you know circulate every year have evolved to reside in our respiratory tracts, to agitate our olfactories, you know, to make us cough and sneeze, and to then also be able to hitch a ride on the particulates and water droplets and snot that we expel with the hopes of landing on some other, you know, poor soul in the supermarket. Now, that's a lot of very clever biological machinery, right? And bird flus don't do that. And instead, most of them have evolved to live in the guts of birds and to pass out of birds in their feces. Chickens eat one another's feces to share good bacteria amongst themselves and the flu can effectively spread this way. Or perhaps if you're a duck or a swan, the virus can then get into the water this way and move from bird to bird that way instead. Now, all these mechanisms I've described are a very, you know, complicated recipe list of things that that bird flu virus you've just picked up has to evolve to do very, very quickly before it dies out. Viruses are very good at evolving quickly, but it's just too much that it has to do. And that means that most zoonotic virus spillovers, like influenza, die out before they become a new human pandemic. It's a one in a trillion, you know, incy wincy chance of that happening. Actually, we don't fully understand exactly how small that probability is. Some people don't even think it is possible. But no matter how small that probability is, the more times we roll that dice, the more chance there is of it happening. You know, I mean, there's a 1 in 45 million chance of winning the lottery. Tiny, tiny chance. But so many
0: people buy lottery tickets that it does happen. And it's the same principle with new pandemics. Those are some high-stake consequences, and as a result, there's an urgent need to monitor and study how viruses circulate in animals, and where and how we might be able to reduce the risk of diseases spreading, and with it, the risk of a new pandemic starting. We've heard a lot in the podcast series so far about data analysis and modeling work done to understand the spread of diseases throughout humans, and I wanted to know if the same techniques and approaches could be used for animal diseases. Um,
1: yes and no. So on one scale, it can be quite easy to use the exact same modelling techniques as we do for all our human diseases. Um, In fact, in some situations, they can even work better than for humans. If I'm looking at the spread of disease on one farm from bird to bird, a lot of those modelling assumptions we make, they hold up brilliantly. You know, 50,000 birds across a couple of sheds, that's actually a relatively simple model where each host, each bird, is mixing around with each other. If, though, we pull back the scale somewhat and we instead want to study and model an animal disease at a nationwide scale or even a global level, there suddenly appears a lot of reasons why it becomes a bit more complicated. There's two big reasons straight away that complicate things uh, that are found on either side of a bird and go flap, 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 (laughs) right? Birds fly. And different birds fly to different places at different times of years and at different scales. This is then further impacted by climate change. Uh, changing temperatures and environments mean that animals will move to different places. Urban expansion forces animals out of some places and increases the points where we cross paths with different animals. Everything starts to impact everything else until your head starts to spin. And it's because of this huge and interconnected network of dependencies, we've seen a new type of research approach appear in recent years, which we refer to as One Health Research.
0: One Health Research is a scientific field, or rather a research methodology, that recognises that the health and well-being of all aspects of our environment and ecosystem are connected. It recognises that the health of human populations is intrinsically linked to the health of our animals, our land, and our climate and that we can't truly understand one without understanding the other. This, of course, requires the expertise from a lot of different fields. To help facilitate this, the One Health High Level Expert Panel was established in 2021, an organization combining the expertise of the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and the Organization for Animal Health to help pool data to initiate key collaborations and identify the most pressing research gaps and questions. Questions that Tom is interested in helping answer.
1: So obviously, this huge global interconnected system that we're trying to understand and support has a lot of moving parts. And so to understand it, we need a lot of data, right? We absolutely can't monitor and record data on every animal and every plant and every spillover case in every country. So one of the first priorities is, right, well, where do we prioritise data gathering and monitoring, I'm a mathematician, so all this talk of probabilities and optimising systems and networks is really what piques my interest. So let's say, for example, I'm the World Health Organisation, and I've got enough money for an X amount of surveillance sites, places that are going to routinely monitor animals and keep track of places where humans and animals meet and mingle. Now, where do I prioritise putting these sites? You could make strong arguments for a lot of different places. I talked about how rampant bird flu is at the moment. Well, a lot of birds migrate uh, across between you know, Greenland and Africa, so maybe we should set up monitoring stations in North Africa or Scandinavia somewhere and monitor these birds each year as they're moving to and fro. Or perhaps you say, no, 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 birds isn't the priorities, it's pigs. Half of the world's pigs are farmed in China, we should be prioritizing monitoring and sampling pigs in China. Or maybe you say, well, yes, but the pigs in China are kept in very different conditions to the pigs in the US, where we have these huge swine markets with thousands of pigs from all over the country coming together and mixing with loads of people, too. You know, that's a, a big public health concern. We should be monitoring that. Or maybe you say, well, we know that actually ferrets and mink, serious point, are actually very susceptible to a lot of different flus from a lot of different animals. And worst of all, their respiratory systems are even more similar to ours than birds or pigs are. We should set up monitoring in Denmark, where the majority of the world's mink farms uh, used to be. We don't know what the answer to this question is yet. But by looking at information we have on what animals we are farming and where what countries they're being moved between and how they interface with you know, humans and the wild and each other, we can begin to build some what-if models and simulations to provide a little bit of insight and to point to what sort of data would be the most useful to start gathering now.
0: Being able to prevent zoonotic diseases requires a multidisciplinary approach to tackle it. We have to be constantly vigilant to what diseases are circulating and what animals. When particularly challenging diseases appear like the recent H5N1 strain, we have to respond quickly to outbreaks, supporting farmers to be able to quickly cull and reclaim their farms, minimizing onward transmission, and we have to ensure that human contact with animals is as safe as possible. Being able to constantly stay on top of that all across the world is a difficult undertaking, and one that Tom's previous work suggests might be a losing battle. So,
1: the majority of my PhD work was trying to understand ways that we can limit spread within our food systems. But I mean, honestly, one of the findings from my PhD was that the nature of how we keep and manage poultry certainly makes that just so difficult. And at some point, this will have to evolve beyond simply a scientific pursuit of putting out fires and is instead a conversation we need to have as a species regarding how we interact with our environment and the creatures that we force into it. And when you pull on that thread, you realise the scale of this one health approach again. Do we bulldoze some rainforest in South America for more cow pastures? You know, people need to eat. Well, okay, now you've displaced a whole host of other species with their own diseases, okay? Now you've critically altered the soil to make it trickier to grow crops there. Now those cows are, you know, farting more methane into the atmosphere and heating the planet, and now our farms near the equator are too hot for livestock to live in. It's all one big connected system
0: that, you know, really risks spiraling out of control. Before you feel too depressed, it's also a connected system that every day we understand a bit more. And every day, research funders and governments are providing more resources to One Health research and programmes. New science and new environmental support schemes will all be a part of the next century's attempts to get to grips with our planet's One Health. One can often feel scared or disempowered in the face of these environmental challenges. With this in mind, my final question for Tom was, what can the average person do to help? I go back
1: and forth on the idea of Personal involvement, because you know, on the one hand, significant change needs to come from far higher up the chain than just one person. But of course, those big decisions and policies and you know, global actions are driven by the priorities of people. And so, yeah, you know, the best thing anyone can do is start by, well, really, just by being aware of the details of the challenges we face. You know, understanding the demands that our lifestyles may place on the planet. And nowhere is that more pressing, I think, than our demands of animals. So, you know, don't kiss swans uh, is the first message, of course. Um, Or more generally, I suppose, would be understanding and respecting environmental spaces and educating ourselves about the, the risks that come with certain practices. If people didn't buy mink coats, then there wouldn't be any need for us to keep thousands of mink locked up together and there wouldn't be the need for that pandemic risk. And that also then falls to us as scientists to effectively explain all this as well. It's been a great deal of fun making the Jamil series, exploring more of my friends and colleagues work, but fundamentally a lot of what we do when we strip away the complicated computer code and scientific jargon, it's principles that everyone can understand. And I think people want to understand too. I think being able to take that dense scientific theory and extracting from that the stories that people care about is a really crucial part of driving public health itself. You know, by putting these tools and that understanding into people's hands directly, that's a really effective way to initiate change itself. And that's a very fun thing to be a part of.
0: You can continue to be a part of exactly that next week with another episode of Jimmy O'Cast. I've been Tristan Naidoo, and thanks so much for listening. How did I do? Oh, you're
1: yeah, brilliant.